0: sound logic podcast Two guys with
1: no credentials
0: reviewing rolling stone 500 greatest
1: album welcome back everyone to the sound logic podcast and today we're discussing album number 60 on rolling stone magazine's top 500 albums list this is Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart and his magic band.
2: My I cannot go back to your Number sixty. I'm excited.
1: I'm super pumped.
2: Brad, we're just so glad to have you with us as we tackle this um, very interesting, shall we say, uh, album. For those of you who haven't yet done so, please go back and check out our midweek episode where we talk all about Brad's um, incredible projects, the RS500. I think it's really like having a kindred spirit here with us to to navigate something like this. Someone who's already made the journey through these 500 albums, and um, we're really glad to have you with us here to talk about this one. A way we usually start this out is by talking through our first impressions of this album, if we can think back in time to when that was. Sort of unfortunately for Mike and I, our first impressions happened mere weeks ago when this album rolled around on this, this list. This is brand, yeah. brand new for us. Um, so I'm wondering, Brad, if you could maybe start things out, and tell us a little bit about um, what your introduction to this album was and, and how it found its way into your life.
0: Yeah, uh, this was a CD that was one of the staff picks at the record store where I worked at in high school, oh, wow. and um, the CD was still in print, I think, at the time. It's out of print now, which is kind of crazy, but it was still in print, but it was kind of hard to find because it's abstract, and um, it was a used record store, so people would only really bring in things that they didn't want. And typically, if you own this album, you're not really going to give it away in the early 2000s. Because if you own it, it means that it's like a treasured possession of yours because not many people really like this album. So it's, you know, it wouldn't come into the store very often because, unlike in probably 1969 when the album actually came out, people probably bought this album and then they probably like brought it right back to the store a week later but in the early 2000s it had such a reputation that if you owned it like i own this album and i love it and i just i love it and it's so important to me so it didn't come into the store very often and so it came in um my friend of mine who worked at the store and introduced me to a lot of music he uh pulled it out of the staff picks stack and said you need to take this home with you when you go home today so (laughs) i brought it home and um listened to it and couldn't stand it and had you know i had the inkling even as as a 15 year old like what i'm listening to is probably hugely influential and great and it sounds like like i can already hear sort of what punk rock would come out of this but i can't even get through track one um, and then the second track is like a spoken word poem. And then what is even happening? And the drums sound terrible. And, you know, I, I wasn't a purist of any kind, but I was like, I recognize that that this album is really important and I'm never going to listen to, to this, um, you know, and then and then I got older and spent a lot more time with it. And it's, it's become really important to me.
2: I can't imagine being a kid in that record store seeing this was the staff here, <laughs> thinking, Oh, okay. The staff yeah. loves it. I better get it. And walking home and putting it on it like, what did I just get tricked into? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, it, it, this has been a, a challenge for us just to, to find. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to say we had to use uh, gray, uh torrent site that i won't name to
0: great back channel
2: yeah. <laughs> back channel to find this uh yeah. album because on spotify uh you cannot listen to the, the album in its original order there someone somewhere a fan i guess has um pieced yeah. together the album from outtakes and b-sides and rarities and some other things oh. so you can kind of get a general yeah. sense of what the album is but a lot of them are like uh second or third takes at a song and so you're not actually getting what the final pressing sounds like.
0: Yeah, or they're just um like in- um, instrumental practice versions of the songs and right. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how this album was created, but they practice 12 to 14 hours a day for months. And so there's all this like tape and material of them just practicing like obsessively these extremely difficult songs. And so there's this um there's a box set called grow fins which is like outtakes and rarities from all of Jeez. captain b whole career <laughs> and 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 that's what's on spotify it's just a box set of outtakes and rarities and you know it's it's definitely for for purists like i i, I don't go to that box set even and say like i want to hear an instrumental version of this song that already is really challenging um so that's what they have on spotify the whole the whole thing is on uh YouTube, so you can just find like the whole thing yeah. on YouTube, broken up into tracks, which is which is pretty great. Um, I have my CD still, so I put it today on my laptop, and then connected my phone to my laptop and put it onto my phone. I was like, I need to have a version of this on my phone <laughs> because right now I'm streaming it on YouTube and it's like crappy quality. And but they <laughs> need to put it on Spotify. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
2: It's something, and I
0: think that. That first um,
2: you know, fan-made playlist on Spotify was probably the wrong angle to approach this. Like, it's even weirder than this weird thing. And so my first, yeah. few, my first few clicks yeah. through, I was like, this can't be right. There's got to be something going on here that this can't possibly be on this list. And um, I was somewhat pleased to discover that it wasn't the actual thing. But then, when I found the real thing, I was like, "Oh man, this is also really weird too." <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was quite. Weird. Like, this
0: only sounds a little bit better, marginally yeah. better. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I, Mike. I don't know. Do you? Does it feel like playing our hand too much to get into some of our initial reactions?
1: Well, I w- I will just say this. I, I, <laughs> yes, I agree with you, and I will say this one thing, and I think you and I are in the same boat here. I've said before. Listen, I'm not. I'm not a music credit, critic. I'm not an expert. Uh, I'd like to think that I lis- I've listened to lots of different music over, you know, the thirty-seven years I've walked this earth, and I've tried to listen to as much as I can and have a, a general knowledge of a lot of different genres. Certainly, I would have at least heard of the albums on a 500 greatest. <laughs> Certainly, in the first sixty. I would have at <laughs> least heard of all these albums and this will mark now the second band that I've never even heard of before the first being love um yeah. and yeah. now uh, Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band and I was as we were approaching this and going through the list as we often do and going I I don't even know where to place that so this is again one of those moments where there was no frame of reference. The only frame of reference I had was Ben saying, oh, Mike, there's something come up here that I don't think you're going to (laughs) like. It's like Titanic
0: (laughs) in the iceberg. Yeah, we can (laughs) see
1: it. (laughs) So from that, the only thing going in is I knew it would be experimental. I knew that it was from 1969, so I had a bit of a sense of what kind of experimental it would be. And that was my only frame of reference, yeah for i I had a roommate in college who listened to a lot of like sixties jam band stuff, like mm-hmm. uh, the Grateful Dead, and he listened to fish not from the sixties, obviously, and he listened to stuff like canned heat and and kind of jam band. So some of that goes on a tangent from time to time in these long instrumental sections where people are just improvising. I imagined it would be something like that that was mm-hmm. the only thing i was going on so that's that's where i'm coming from before i press play here
0: this is just about like the least improvised album of all time like it they that's it right. is like aggressively like created to a point where everything that you're hearing that that sounds like people in a house creating chaos out of nothing is actually entirely intentional. Um, and and it's it's completely avant-garde in this very intentional way that has no precursor in rock music and really nothing after it that is doing the same kind of thing at the level that it's doing. It's, it's wild.
1: <laughs> and that's fascinating to me. And if I hadn't read that, uh, sorry, if I hadn't read about that in some of my research and also what you wrote in your essay, Brad, I would have assumed this was all just totally improvised and to find that it's 100% structured and planned is uh, terrifying and fascinating all at once.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Something, I guess a a very quick impulse that I often have when I'm approaching an album I've never heard before is to go to the Wikipedia page for it. And, and that uh, does start to reveal some of these details that we're just starting to get into, but it also has some perplexing things too. Like, Simpsons creator Matt Groening is one of the quotes that are in that Wikipedia page about the impact that it's had on his life. And I thought, like, Yeah, what am I getting myself into mm-hmm. here where um, that's the angle that, that we think is important to, to lift up here is <laughs> uh, a cartoonist sort of uh, giving a music uh, yeah. a pitch here. So, it, yeah, it'll be really interesting to tackle this. Especially with someone who has such an appreciation for it, and, and this has happened a number of times on this uh, podcast so far, where um, we're brand new to someone to something, and we need a, a person with some passion to help us along. So I'm excited for the ride; it should, be, it should be a fun ride.
1: Details, 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 details. The album was itself was first released June 16th, 1969, and this was Captain farts, Third studio album, and he had done things through his career on his own with his magical band, and the band changed. But this was as Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band. This was their third studio album. All the tracks are credited to Captain Beefheart, who is uh, Don Van Vliet, and arranged by John French. We couldn't find charting, but I did find one site that said this did go to number twenty-one in the UK
0: yeah uh, which is interesting to me b- because
1: yeah. uh, it wasn't very well received i don't think it was very well promoted and uh as you had said uh, earlier brad probably a lot of people bought this and took it back to the store the next week <laughs> yeah <laughs> because they had no idea what they were getting into uh and it's an also it's an american band yet it charts number 21 in the uk which is again fascinating
0: it's charting in the uk is so strange i mean it it was the third album released on frank zappa's um imprint like he, his label that he had created and so you might think like well if frank zappa was like english or british or something then like maybe he had brought it there but he i mean he's incredibly american <laughs> and, <laughs> and don Van Blee captain beefheart is incredibly american so i i don't know how that how that happened uh, strange the uk charts
1: seem int- it's we've come across this before like we talked about Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and it never hit like it stayed on the Billboard charts for like 40 years uh, yet it never <laughs> oh it never hit number 1 in the UK and like the thing that blocked it was like a throwback to the 60s compilation album that came out the yeah. same week and it's just like <laughs> you're just reading it shaking your head like what <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> um so the uk charts seem to be very interesting at times yeah that's for sure also couldn't find anything for uh, for sales and like sales are tricky to track too because that has to do with distribution and um uh, doesn't take into account resale, and then we talk about different formatting, so there's nothing there. But I think it's safe to say that, at least in its original pressings and printings on CDs, that sales were not large, they were not overly impressive, that this is still a bit of a rare find even today. Yeah,
0: yeah it, it, it was created... I mean, um, Frank Zappa envisioned this album on his on his label to fit in with the other artists that he wanted on his label, which Mm. were artists that were essentially like, like sociological pieces or, or archeological pieces. Like he, he was finding people that he considered to be like on the fringe of, of culture. And he just wanted to record them as naturally as he could in their natural state, doing whatever they already uh, um, were doing. So he, you know, his first album on that label is essentially like a homeless man on the street who frank zappa came across and he is um uh, mentally ill and it's him like talking and giving poetry and like ranting and raving essentially and he just recorded him on the street over the course of a few days he like followed him around and he knew like i want this to be like my first album on my new label and then the um uh Uh, second album that came out is a group that he essentially formed out of uh, groupies. I think it was like three three or four women who were following bands around and he considered them as like on the fringe. And so he said like, why don't you guys make a band, I'll record you, play whatever kind of uh, uh, you want to. So they weren't like a real band. And then Captain Beefheart, he, he had met in school, and he, so, like, they were old friends, and they had already been collaborating and everything. But Frank Zappa said, I want to put out uh, uh, your next album, and I want you guys to just, like, play in your house as you normally would, and I'll record it as I normally would. So he saw it as, like, a sociological artifact not as like I'm gonna get you guys in the studio and um I'm gonna like really produce your album. He produced Trout Mask Replica, but his production is really just like standing back while they played through the entire album. And then he had them play through it a second time and they played it perfectly both times. And he was like, great. And he did like a little bit of editing afterwards and there's like clips throughout that he and B Part kind of scattered throughout, but largely he saw it as like as like an artifact. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that his label would, like, not really try to put this album out as, like, a bestseller. Like, he, like this was never intended to be, right. like, a real album that would come out that you would, like, find uh, promoted, essentially. Like, it, it had no promotion. It was really seen as... Like, here is a strange album from Frank Zappa. And then I think when it actually came out and Don Van Vliet had had a huge ego and he, you know, he saw himself as a massive artist. And and I think he was. And he um, he said, like, I'm making art. And Frank Zappa was like, okay, I think it's better than I thought it was going to be originally. But it's still like an artifact (laughs) and Frank and Captain Beefheart would say like, no, I'm an artist. And so they clashed a lot on that, but it was not handled very well by the label. I think kind of intentionally.
2: Well, that, that year too, like putting anything out in 1969. um, Yeah. I I imagine it would have been a little tricky to get it to uh, lift up above some of the other stuff that was topping the charts at that time.
0: What's so what's so interesting about that time period, too, is that it's the oh, it's almost like a second wave of the blues um, of the kind of like blues rock explosion. And you have all these white blues people coming in and like sort of changing changing rock and roll a little bit around themselves like Led Zeppelin and um, and the Rolling Stones are adapting to that as well and lots of other bands, and um, Eric Clapton, another huge one, obviously, and the Allman Brothers, and this is like late 60s, early 70s where they're sort of saying like, I am bringing blues to the people, and I'm going to turn it into rock and roll, and then you have Don Van Bleet, who comes in, and also brought up on the blues, obsessed with the blues. And this is, in his mind, a blues album. And yet it is like completely deconstructed, almost impossible to listen to. But he's working in the same sort of idea of everybody else who's making music around. then. that's like, we're going to take these old blues songs and turn them into jams and like uh, crank up our amplifiers and really like blast people out with a new idea of the blues. And Don Van Vliet is like, I also love this genre of music. Um, but I'm gonna completely like throw it in the trash, start all over again, <laughs> while paying homage to like everything that I love about it. Um, which which is why Trout Mask is so innovative to the point of like trying something so radically new instead of adapting very old things into a new like sort of idea. Like uh, Led Zeppelin would say. You know, like, we've got huge amplifiers now, and we didn't have that. So now let's play our blues songs through huge amplifiers and with, like, a 12-piece drum kit and, like, all this kind of stuff. But they're essentially just playing, like, a Robert Johnson song. Like, it's the same blues songs that have always been around forever. Um, And Captain Beefheart's like, I'm gonna take this idea of the blues but also throw it into a blender with like expressionist painting and like dada poetry and like my own absurd brain that like makes no sense at all so Mm. it's crazy that i mean it makes sense that it came out in 1969 because it's in the same trajectory but it it sounds outside of time really like i think i think no matter what it sounds outside of time brad i have a
1: tendency to um Uh, insert people into the Woodstock festival I'll say like oh this person was at Woodstock and they were never at Woodstock and (laughs) I don't think Captain Beefheart was at Woodstock Um, No, but I can absolutely imagine people doing the hippy dippy dance uh, (laughs) like all night long to Captain Beefheart it totally fits with everything else happening in 69 in that kind of era of just free expression. Yeah. Okay, it's, words, it's very words much words in line. Too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, like just it's yeah. it's yeah, everything was about art and expressing and yet at the same time you're absolutely right. You have Zeppelin's a great example because they're like we are we are fine tuning and playing this with this new technology, you know, mm-hmm. the amplifications and making it bigger and louder and I'll use the word better because that obviously they were trying to do that. Um and this this is just <laughs> the other
0: end of the spectrum, and it's yeah, it's so great. I mean, my my take on this album um, is that essentially it's it's one of the greatest contemporary blues albums of all time because hmm. w- when you've got contemporary blues, it, when this album came out, I would say in this time period, the people who were like bringing blues back. Were really white people, like it was white men, and they were saying we love this like old black American music, and we're going to bring it into a new stratosphere, and we're going to like bring attention to it. Like there was an intent behind it that was, I think, positive in a way. And they were like, we want to introduce people to Robert Johnson and, and to um, Blind Willie Johnson and to all these people. Like we want to record their stuff so that we can pay homage to it and like do it like louder and bigger and better. Um, but at the end of the day, they, they are really singing songs that were written by poor black men in America, yeah. and a long time ago. And and there's a lot of problematic stuff going on about yeah. that. Yeah. And I think when you when you listen to some of it now, and even at the time, hopefully there's there's a real cringy aspect to it where you're like, I'm rocking to this, but also, th- like, here's a song that is being performed by very privileged people in in america or in england and they're acting like they have like huge problems in the world and they're gonna die and god doesn't love them and like all this kind of stuff and um and they're just sort of adapting these personas and what don van vliet is doing with trout mex replica is essentially saying like there is so much emotion in the blues, and that's what blues as a concept really is, is it's like this heavy feeling that I'm feeling. And yet, how am I going to sing about what these people are singing about? That's not my experience at all. My experience is like dropping LSD and living in a house with all these people and, you know, and being really into extreme avant-garde um, art and painting and sculpture and poetry. And my my experience is privileged and it's strange and it's odd. And um, so I like I'm I want to sort of put a filter of my own experience onto this music that I love so much. So I just I, I see this album as radically reshaping what the blues is, but not in a sort of like influential way. Like it's just sort of acknowledges that the influence is there and then completely changes everything about it. Which is really intense, <laughs> I think.
1: Mm. That that is so interesting and uh, really enlightening to hear you say that. I, and I could see that hearing you say that. Yes, I guess the the difference is it it didn't become what blues would would end up being after this, right? Um, exactly. But I think it's a great reflection interpretation of what what it could become and how someone who didn't grow up in that same tradition and experience could interpret the blues and, and turn it into. I love that. Uh, sometimes we talk about also uh, yet another list. Colin Larkin's uh, 1,000 Greatest Albums uh, which, which I have, which is another uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so thing albums. to go through. <laughs> um, have, have you seen that list, uh, Brad? I don't think I've seen it. I mean, that that's <laughs> overwhelming. That's too many. Uh, but he puts this at number fifty um, on the yep. top thousand, so even higher than this top five hundred. So clearly, That's it's something cool. that yeah. you know people. Well, the same as like uh, that was another one when we talked about uh, "Forever Changes" by Love. You know, it's number forty on the Rolling Stone, and I think it's then if my memory serves me, like number twelve or thirteen in the Colin Larkins. They've Yama got Tire. it way up at the top. So it. I think that list or whoever's creating that, they again, they had voting and they had polling and all that, but I think they yeah. had a, a little more sensitivity for the influential bands and albums that weren't necessarily the most popular or the yeah. easiest to listen to or digest, but the ones that musicians really grabbed mm-hmm. onto as... Influencing them, we heard that again with Velvet Underground that um, only a thousand people bought the album, but every one of them started a band. Uh, you know, was the was it's the, a great it's a great line. It's that, a like, fantastic line. How true is it actually? I don't know, but it's a great <laughs> it, line. <laughs> so many of the artists out of the '70s and '80s that have become just the groundwork of new genres like uh, like punk and glam rock. There's so many of them say that was an album that changed my life. Yeah, you know, that was the groundwork, and uh, now we're hearing about this uh, Trout Mask as well. Tr-
0: Trout Mask, I mean, in 2011, I want to say was added to the uh, National Registry. Oh like, wow! Uh, <laughs> but so, so the the Library of Congress in 2011, like they put it in the Library of Congress as like a very important artifact of, wow. of music, of like American music and music in general. Its position in in sort of American culture, and maybe global culture, but especially especially American culture, um, it's probably the most generally well-regarded. I'm, I, I mean, I'm just second guessing myself as I say this, but it's definitely <laughs> like it's up there as one of the most well-regarded pieces of avant-garde art that exists. Um, it being at number sixty on the RS five hundred. I think is a huge testament to how influential it was, and how how cared for it is by producers and and writers and critics and musicians, because those are the people who vote for those on those lists. Right. Right. Um, so it it has a huge impact in history, and um, as a piece of avant-garde art, it's it's up there. What's what's so off-putting about it, or I want to say like hard or difficult about it is that it's it's an 80-minute album so <laughs> it's kind of like if you went to see like a like an avant-garde play that would be quite long as well like you're really investing your time but if you have a sculpture or a painting and it's avant-garde or out there or strange to you you can go and see it and be like that's interesting and then you can go and walk away and like it doesn't require an, an hour yes. and a half of your time yeah. Yeah. to to really like say like i've experienced this piece of avant-garde art and its trout mask you need to invest an hour and a half of your time in it and and that's really what the like a big challenge of it is i think it's it's what i love about it though <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah kids today aren't really uh, ready to give up that much time
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah even harder now even harder now <laughs>
1: Should we shift now to the
2: album artwork, or is there anything else here for well historicity? I keep
1: staring at it, and it's kind of... Uh, it. <laughs> it um, yeah, let, let's talk about it. Okay, so this cover, I, I mean, if you're listening right now, you, you really need to go Google it and, and look it up as we talk about it, because it doesn't just do justice just to hear me talk about it. And to see it, it is just as obscure and strange as the music that's contained within. If you can picture this, it's a red background, a very a red that almost fades from cherry to fuchsia. There's
2: got to be some magenta in there too, I think.
1: Magenta, yeah, this is an interesting <laughs> color. And then there's 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 a man, and he's wearing a, a green suit with a very furry. Collar or vest, just a rough kind of fur with a blue shirt underneath. He's got his hand up almost like to stop, and then on his head is I want to say like a pilgrim hat without the <laughs> buckle. I don't know what to call
0: that. The stovetop, it's a stovetop stove hat. Stovetop hat, okay, great. It's, it's like what Abraham Lincoln wore. It's
2: got, it's got like the flying yeah. wings coming out of you the you know,
0: flag. it has like a flying nun kind of situation. Yeah. I wonder if it's like a homemade stovepipe or just like a really, um, really cheap one. Yeah, it's weird. And then
1: the the thing that really stands out on this picture is the face because, and I can't tell if it's a mask or just something superimposed. It's a it's a fish head, and the one thing that I, I again I'm not a fish expert, but it's not it's not a trout. It's something much uglier, more like a like some sort of catfish. And then the eyes, it almost looks like there's googly eyes uh, pasted on where the eyes would be. (laughs) So it's like, it's, it's, it's equal parts, uh, weird, funny, gross, and strange all at once. And it just kind of like, you look at it like, okay, I don't even know what I'm looking at and couldn't fit any more perfectly <laughs> with the <laughs> album itself
0: so it's it's a it's a carp that had the photog- okay. it's a carp that the photographer carl Sch- Schenkel. he found it at a farmer's market and brought it to his photography oh session with don van bleat when they were making the cover and um they they literally carved it out they either cut off the head and then carved it out but they carved out the inside of the fish head and he had to hold it up to (laughs) his face for a couple hours while they shot while they shot the cover i mean it it perfectly encapsulates what this album is about it's also kind of like a warning that's like (laughs) you might not be into this um (laughs) it's very strange what what i love that you mentioned is that it's it's got a sense of humor i think i think that i think I think that that this album is hilarious in intentionally so. Like it, it's got jokes in it. It's yes. a funny album. It tries to be funny. It doesn't. It both takes itself incredibly seriously and doesn't take itself seriously at all. Yeah. And um, I think I think that this cover is like mm, it's perfect. I love it. <laughs> um, so so you're telling me that is
1: Captain Beefheart himself? Yeah, that's him. That's, that's, that's Don Van Vliet. That's he Don will, Van he Vliet held it up to And yep. he's got he's holding this carved out carp <laughs> face. Yep. Wow. It's it's brilliant. <laughs> and and I I like what you said about um the humor because throughout and we'll get into the throughout the album at the end of tracks or sometime in the beginning you'll hear just dialogue about, you know, it's yep. it's Don Van Vliet or maybe I, it could be Frank Zappa a few times talking about some production notes you know oh that sounds good there or How are we good did you get that you know there's all or just different dialogue or things pasted in a guy coming in and talking about rats like <laughs> yep. just just all this just wild stuff that you can't tell sometimes is it intentional and supposed to make a point or was it supposed to be funny or was it just just there just because you know and that's yeah same things happening with this image which is uh boy it's something
2: I, and I, I find myself, both in listening to the music and looking at this cover art, if the artist is behind me chuckling that I'm taking it so seriously. <laughs> I look at this and I think, what, they, what must they have meant by putting a fish face on that? And like, is the hat supposed to mean something? And I, I don't know if that... Is the artist's intention of like oh, that's what we want you to do, or if they're back there thinking like yeah. I can't believe you bought that we just sold you this thing um, and called it art? Um, yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. Like, and and I think it
0: could go both of those ways,
2: and and both of those ways maybe are okay.
0: So Cap- Captain Beefheart himself was a super intense person, and he, I, I mean, he's not like he's pretty problematic as a, as a figure who ran his band because he treated them so terribly. Um, And he was definitely like the leader of this band. Um, When they made this album, he was 27, 28 and the rest of his band is like 20 to 21. Like they're much younger. And he, he would like insult them and scream at them and Uh. tell them that it wasn't good enough. So he took himself way too seriously, and also had this strange sense of humor that was not uh, like i don't it, it was very um sarcastic and biting like it was very much in line with with the frank zappa type of humor and yet on top of that he by all accounts i mean his band changed so many times throughout his career and that, I think, had almost entirely to do with his attitude and his personality. He was really hard to get along with. Um, J- John French, who's sort of the, like, unsung hero of this album, he's he's the drummer on this album and, and for a number of Captain Beefheart albums. But he has talked at length just about how, like, he would quit the band and then come back a few years later and then quit again and then come back a year later because there was this really, like... Um, Magnetic quality about uh, about Van Blee, and he was always really interested and sort of amazed at how he saw like what was going on around him, and yet he would be so mean to everybody around him at the same time. And so it's like what's sort of hidden underneath this album is these artists and these musicians who. rehearsed these songs all day long every day while Captain Beefheart was kind of not around. He was like writing his own poetry and then probably like dropping LSD and just like hanging out with his girlfriend at the time. And by all accounts he wasn't really around. Like He crafted these songs, gave them to people, and they just uh, played them obsessively. And then it was when it was time to like um, put them on tape, they knew them so well that they could just like go into the studio and make them all. But that really just had to do with like their obsessive nature over this music that they thought was really, really cool. But he was does not sound like a person I would really like enjoy <laughs> hanging out with necessarily. <laughs> he also
2: smells like fish, too. So. Yeah, it's going to be... Yeah, be exactly. A <laughs> who wants that?
0: It speaks a lot to John Van Bleet and who he was, that he sort of invented and then propagated this, um, like a mythology, essentially, that, that he wrote all these songs all by himself, and he did it all in like an eight-hour session, and it was really intense. And they have that in the Wikipedia for for this album, and then they sort of say, like, according to Van Bleet and then they, like... Uh, double back and sort of correct history a little bit because he created this story behind this album that I wrote all these songs in an eight-hour blur and then you know I taught them to my people and they played them and really what it was was that he didn't know how to play an instrument he didn't really know how to write music at all he got a piano and it like changed everything essentially he got a piano he moved his band into this house in Southern California and he started to construct these tracks but he would plink away at like a few measures at a time and be like okay that sounds really cool i like that and then he would totally forget what he had plinked out two hours later because he didn't know how to like write it down essentially john french who's uh who's the drummer on this album and a brilliant drummer and is still drumming now he was 20 21 years old when they made this and he went to Don Van Vliet and hung out with him all day long for days and days at a time. And they would just plink out like a little, like a melody here on the piano. And John French would try to write down on, on like uh, sheet music paper, kind of what he thinks he heard. And then he would play it back on the instrument for Captain Beefheart and be like, is this kind of what you heard in your mind? And he'd be like, uh, a little bit slower. And like, he would just kind of plink out a melody on the piano wow. and then John French like John French would actually like make sure that that it all got jotted down and he so like now on the back of um of the album uh it says all songs like composed by Don Van Bleet and arranged by John French when the album came out John French isn't mentioned anywhere in the liner notes um they oh. had had a falling out they had had a big fight And so Captain Beefheart, when the album came out, he was like, I don't want John French on my album. He's not even listed as like a band member in the liner notes. And yet when they do like a reprint of the album, it's corrected and he's put on as the arranger um, and the drummer. And he basically like he wrote down all of the parts for all of the band members. And that's sort of how the album was created. And then eventually they had tracks and, the band would just spend like literally all day long practicing them over and over and over again to this obsessive point of like these songs are in three different times time signatures they (laughs) don't mesh they don't make sense and yet it's fascinating to us and we're so interested in this and like Cool, it's like it's that time period, whatever. Um, and, and they just like loved how intricate these tracks were, so they just obsessively played them and they would like work out little kinks here and there. And then all the lyrics of it were just poetry from Captain Beefheart, and he um he would write poetry and like totally abstract uh avant-garde poetry, essentially, parts of which totally make sense, parts of which are like um, like invented words entirely and he uh, he would write these poems and then he would sort of shout and sing them over the music and there are some songs where you can hear him still talking or singing even though like all of the music has stopped because he wrote more words for the song than there was music for the song <laughs> and they would stop playing and yet he records his vocals on like a different track and so the music stops and he's still like and lightly and he's just still saying like lyrics to the song that didn't fit in the actual music of the song, so they were totally made in like a disjointed, in in a disjointed way where the the music is so intentional and like every bass line, every drum line, every guitar line, like is is jotted down and completely intentional, and it's like it's like it's like avant-garde orchestration essentially, and um, and then you have avant-garde poetry on top of it, and they don't go together, and they. Are not really in line with each other you can hear sometimes a track comes up that you're like oh my gosh like stable ground like that like um Moon, uh, moonlight is like the track on this album that in my mind it's my favorite song on the album and in my mind you're like This has a drum fill that opens up this song. This has a guitar line that's, like, rip-roaring. Like, I feel like I'm listening to, like, a rock song. And then he starts to, like, shout stuff over it. And you're like, okay, it's a little bit weird, but, like, I can hear, like, a melody here. And so there's, like, pockets here and there where everything lines up perfectly. And you're like, okay, for some reason, like, it all aligned. And then you have a song like Frownland, which opens the album. And Frownland is, like so hard to listen to because the rhythms of it make no sense and, and it's because it was constructed like almost like a collage like a uh, like a right. collage is sort of the best way i can i can really think of it because he would write he would come up with a bass line and then come up with a drum line and then come up with a guitar line individually being like that line sounds cool to me that line is interesting that line is interesting okay now put them over each other in the same song and john <laughs> french would be like okay but that's a waltz like that's in three four and that drum line is in like five seven and you just want them playing at the same time and he was like yeah it'll sound good <laughs> and so like john, john french really arranged this whole album he he sort of interpreted what don van Bleet was coming up with in his brain and I think it drove him crazy a little bit but like that that's essentially how it was made so you have you do have in in my mind a genius who's Don Van Vliet with ideas in his head like genius meaning not like a great man but genius meaning like his brain is working in ways that brains don't usually work in and like artistically what he's coming up with is so off-center that it's brand new entirely brand new so you do have like A man there who is like it's like a Wizard of Oz figure who's just like I have all these ideas and then you actually have a person who is somewhat trained musically or is good at making music to the point where they can say okay let me interpret this strange nonsense that is in your brain and actually Mm. put it down onto paper so (laughs) that that's how it was made (laughs) and what you get is is I guess what you get it's weird for sure yeah Mike, I'm guessing you want
2: to say all the names of these
1: tracks, right?
0: Oh my gosh, go through the tracklist.
1: <laughs> um the, Brad, if you if this is you asking me to do it, I will 100 I will do it.
0: You don't have to do it. But but what what I would request is that I want I want each of you to pick out your favorite title from the track list. doesn't have to do with the music. Ooh,
2: yeah. Just
0: what, which oh, of the titles Is there are good. The song has good track. I mean, this album has good track titles. So of the titles, which one's like, Oh, I like that, that word combination. Oh man. <laughs>
1: the, And they are very colorful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we move on, I just want to say one more thing. Um, and the way you were talking there, Brad made me think about a couple different things. Uh, Ben, you're more of a visual arts guy than I am. And to consume visual art, uh, you uh, like you can see anything in front of you, whether it's on a canvas or 3D or a sculpture. And someone can usually explain it. You know, it's like that, you know, you'll have a tour guide to say, okay, well, here's how you interpret this. And here's how you appreciate this. You can take, as you talked about collages and taking, you know, people like, well, this is my art. This is how I want to present my art. This is what was in my brain. And there's rules to visual art and painting and different styles. There's rules there, but you can bend them and you can almost put anything. And as long as you can explain it, someone out there can consume it. And music seems to be a little different in that number one, it takes longer. You can look at a picture and then flip it away or turn your head, but music, you have to intentionally put it into your ears unless you're you're in a public place and it's just playing. Um, And there seems to be, it's harder, the further you get away from those rules, the harder it is to consume that. And for Don Van Vliet, he's saying, take this and take this and take this and put it together. Mm -hmm. John French says, it doesn't really work like that. And he goes,
0: that's my art. Like that's yeah. what I that's what I want. Like, and what and 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 what music does too is it it asks so much of you. I, I yes, think yes, I absolutely. think music probably asks more of its audience than really any other art form I can think of. Because like if you're I was trying reading to books, say that without saying that, <laughs> <'cause> yeah. <laughs> sorry. But yes, it's like yes. If if you if you read books, if you like look at paintings, if you go see like Broadway plays, if you're watching a movie, like you you don't typically like obsess over a thing from that medium and and do it over and over and over and over and over again and if you do it's it's way more unusual but like an album there are albums that you can like and I have listened to uh, like thousands and thousands of times there's not a movie that I've done that with there's not like a book I've done that with like it's just it's something that because of the nature that it's been created in, it's it's asking for you to find a hook in inside of it so that it can play in your ears over and over and over again. And like you can't really go see like a play a thousand times. Like it's gonna be very, very challenging. But yeah. a music is a record of something that's asking you to listen to it many, many times. And and Trout Mask I think is is one album that is asking you to to listen to it closely in isolation like repeatedly so that you can really get a sense of what's happening like this is not like a party record like this isn't like i'm gonna like play it for my friends and like watch them react unless you're doing it like as a joke like it's meant to be listened to probably alone or on headphones and then to like kind of like um chat about afterwards with people and be like can you believe this record but it's it's not really like a like a like a public album, so it's it's weird. Like it, it wants to to push you away. It's not a great album for COVID nineteen because
2: you're already in isolation. <laughs> like I think it, it has been a really depressing thing <laughs> for great. me to engage in this moment in time where I want to be talking to people face yes. to face about like can, I, I want to ask that mm-hmm. question. What is this thing that I am listening to? But I am stuck in my house with my kids who don't want this to be on. (laughs) (laughs)
0: no ask your kids play it for your kids what is this explain (laughs) it to me kids i should
2: have and i didn't even get that chance um to do that uh trolls 2 has been dominating our our spotify oh yeah (laughs) the thing that i'm noticing about myself during this quarantine season is that i'm drawn to music that does not challenge me but but takes me to sort of like a warm blanket kind of place of like in this moment of anxiety, just lose yourself in this thing that you enjoy. Trout Mask is the exact opposite, where like every time I've yep. turned it on, I've yep. thought, oh man, I have to really be thinking about this uh, way more than I want to be thinking about music at this moment in time. Um, it's interesting that it, it showed up during this specific historic moment for us, too. Um, uh, and I, And it makes me wonder if we would have experienced it differently if it wasn't under COVID-19, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll save that debate for another yeah. time. Maybe We need to have you back on once we're out of quarantine and, and, and see if the album... <laughs> I feel going. like, now what do you think? Now yeah. I understand. Now yeah. I have the mental energy to handle this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the other thing that I thought of, which is kind of a silly thing, um, but as you were describing it, uh, and this is sort of coincidence, just a couple weeks ago, my wife sent me a video... And it's broken into four. It's a video collage. It's four different musicians. There's a bassist, a trumpet player, a drummer, and a bird pounding his beak on a toy piano. And clearly what someone has done is taken that bird playing music and then have charted it. And all the musicians are playing the chart. And so they're playing along to what the bird has just pounded out on this toy piano that she has on <laughs> her cage. And as you're describing it, I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's what Captain B, part of John French, did. He said, okay, write this down. you know, And then, okay, guys, here's the chart. And they all play it. And you see these guys playing along with this bird, and they're staring intently at the chart, like trying to get everything because it's just madness mm-hmm. and they nail it and i'm like oh my gosh that's trope mask <laughs> like, that's what happened
0: yeah that's sort of a wonderful metaphor i, I, and, I mean and i first i thought yeah.
1: no i'm not gonna bring that up it's silly and then i'm like well that's that's kind of that, that's it <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah i mean it, like this so this is their third album their their first ha- have you have either of you heard their um first record
2: Oh that one I'm really familiar Oh yeah it's not, it's <laughs> on my uh
0: my heavy rotation <laughs> so, so so Safe as Milk is their first album it came out in like 66 I want to say and and it's a like really pretty straightforward blues rock album like okay. it, it is oh. like you would probably enjoy it if not all of it then at least parts of it like it, it's it's intended to be a more um populist record in a way. Like it's it's blues songs, some of which he has written, some of which are covers, and they are still strange. They still have Captain Beefheart's like his voice on top of it, which is a very arresting voice. Um but it like it sounds like 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 a blues like a blues album in a way. Um, and then their second album, which is strictly personal, was a complete sort of trash fire. They they recorded all these tracks that were essentially like 20-minute jam band songs of blues tracks, and they just jammed, jammed, jammed. And then um, they had a producer for the album who completely screwed up the like quality of the sound of it. And so it came out sounding like trash. And Captain Beefheart uh, was really angry about it and was like, I don't want this ever out in the public. And then it was kind of pushed to like a different label and they trimmed a lot of the tracks down. And then the band went into the studio and redid a lot of the tracks. So now you have something that's more like a conventional album where the songs are three or four minutes long, but it it came out in a form that Beefheart wasn't really happy about or satisfied with. and so it's like they they were making music that felt more familiar, that was just like blues rocks, blues rock tracks. Um, but by the time you get to Trout Mask, you have you have a guy who has been so enmeshed in this like genre of music that he's really starting to completely break free out of out of that that cage with his tiny piano, I guess. Like wow. he he is not thinking anymore about about making blues songs as they sound already he's completely like wait what if i what if i did something like radically different and i wasn't concerned about trying to fit into a tradition essentially um which is kind of how you get trout mask oh well that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> shut it down right there that's no. And that's
1: trout mask. <laughs> well, I think, but I think that's important to hear the of uh, of of where he of where he comes from. And uh, might I add, very quickly, it's not yeah. like you know, over ten years he slowly evolved. It's like.
0: Nah, I don't want to do that anymore. We're going to do this, you know. So he, uh, I mean, his his career is fascinating. He he makes his first album in like '66, and then his last album comes out in '82, and then he retires. And he he makes art. He's a painter, and he um, he moves to New Mexico. I want to say. And he like lives in like a hut in New Mexico with his wife, and he paints, and then he shows off his paintings in galleries every now and then. But he retires from music completely. He dies in two thousand ten. So he so for a twenty eight period, a twenty eight year period, he um, he's just a painter in the desert. But for like seventeen years or whatever, he's he's making albums at a pretty rapid pace, um, and they go from blues rock to avant garde, completely out there. He does. I would say two albums that sound like Trout Mask. He has Trout Mask Replica and then his album after this is like um, it was created in the same way that Trout Mask was created so it, it sounds kind of like it um, and then you have him saying why am I not popular? How come people don't like my music? Like That's really his mindset. He's like maybe I should make more, more populist stuff and so he starts to Um, sort of like he gets a haircut, he puts on a suit and he starts to make some albums that are still a little bit odd and like poetic in a way but are more straightforward Um, until eventually in 75 I think he makes this album called um, Blue Jeans and Moonbeams which is like a really straightforward pop album and it's Mm. terrible. It's so Mm. bad And, and it's like if you're trying to put a avant-garde artist into the like pants and clothes and outfit of a pop traditionalist you're not going to get anything good because that's not how his brain operates and he's like crooning like frank sinatra on it but he still kind of sounds like captain beefheart like it's it's not good and so then after that album completely bombs like that is like a terrible selling album it's really poorly uh, uh perceived and at least before then he was like a critical darling and critics were like is really out there and doing something great um but then when he came out with his pop album the audience hated it and the critics also hated it and so he was like okay maybe actually i should just be that guy who makes what i want to make um and then he makes wow. three four or five more albums after that and they're um they're fantastic and and they're like he's in his late 30s to 40s by then so he's older he's more like his voice is like a little bit different um, it's more straightforward rock music with like strange time signatures instead of like totally avant-garde. Um, but it sort of like runs a, a reign of it. I mean he, he performs on on um, SNL in 1980. So oh, wow. he, he yeah his, his SNL performance is is wild. it's fantastic. Um, it's him in full glory at, like, 42 years old, like, screaming into a microphone and this, like, like punk band of, like, guys in their probably 20s, like, going crazy in the background. Um, it's very 1980, and he, like, he had, like, a moment there where he was, like, on TV and, like, kind of popular. But he's he's always been a critical darling. I don't remember where this rant originated, but <laughs> I do think that his, his career is... is so interesting to me. We still haven't picked our our favorite track title.
1: Well, one, one more thing. One more thing. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. Just before we move on, very quickly, in your own words, Brad, can you describe, uh, and, and I think you mentioned the term uh, dataism. Yeah. Can you describe oh that gosh. very quickly? Because I think that's also an important thing, that if anybody decides, oh, I'm going to Google this while I'm listening, uh, that's going to come up.
0: Um, could you just go through that very quickly for us? Sure. So Dada is an art movement. I, I'm not an art historian. I don't know much about art, but Dada is an art movement that came out of World War One, um, and it was really radical at the time. I think that pieces of Dada art still still are pretty radical in my mind. Um, but they it's an art movement that intends to completely reject like logic of, of art and the aesthetics of what art was up to that point. And so they completely rejected it. There's a a Dada Manifesto, um, where a lot of what it talks about is rejecting the idea of the sort of, um, capitalist, um, nature of art that's in there, like creating art to sell. And so they, what Dada artists do is they lean into, into nonsense. Um, and they're doing things like writing poetry for just like how it sounds, not for what the words actually mean. Right. Um, they're writing plays that can't really even be performed on stage. Um, uh, there's a playwright named um, Antonin Artaud who who isn't really a Dada artist, but he, he fits in that mold. And, and the plays he, he writes um, a little bit later on, like there's a part in the play where like a basket full of, puppy, uh, of um, puppies, of um, puppies, cascades into the audience. Like there, there's parts of it that like you couldn't really put on this play. Like nobody's gonna throw a basket of puppies at the audience, and then it's <laughs> like a snake, a snake bites an audience member who dies tragically, and you're like, you, that's not, you can't put that on. So, <laughs> so like they're purposely creating art that is utter nonsense in order to ruffle feathers and say like we should be creating art that is not feeding into a capitalist culture. Uh, Yeah, that's about as good as I can do on that, I think.
1: So Dada music is basically avant-garde music. Is that kind of how, like, does that become avant-garde music?
0: I guess so. I mean, there's lots of different branches of the avant-garde. I mean, avant-garde just means, like, against against the... um, Against the border, essentially, like it, it's pushing that boundary, right? Um, and so it can look like a million different things, but essentially, what the avant-garde, no matter what it is, is trying to do is to offer something up that looks like nothing that's ever existed before it, um, in order to say, here is something brand new and not in any sort of tradition that you already know. Now, people, uh, people talk now about. Is avant-garde dead? Is it possible for it to even exist? Because everything sort of has been done. So at this point, if you're right. doing something that you might traditionally classify as avant-garde, it, it is going to fit into a tradition. And maybe that tradition is like avant-garde as a tradition. So at this point, it's sort of like a snake eating its own tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But but Dada, it it fits into an avant-garde tradition for, right. uh, for sure.
1: Okay, cool. Favorite track name? Oh, favorite track name! I, there are so many incredible gems here. My stepdad, his his name is Jim France, and so his initials are JF. And my my mom, his her initials are MF. But somehow that became OF. Um, <laughs> my stepdad would refer to himself as Old Fart. Um, <laughs> so when I saw Old Fart at play as one of the tracks I just chuckled because that's kind of a joke in our family so I would pick Old Fart at Play and the which is again it's just spoken word for two minutes straight over top of some music with like a really really but like for all of the spoken word on this album the way he speaks it is very smooth and structured yes and yeah. very articulate whereas the other one, yeah. where he kind of he sort of half sings it, and he moves his voice around, and it's very expressive. This one is very, mm-hmm. very smooth. So that was almost jarring. It's like, wait, that sounds normal. That's not right. Like... It's a
0: melancholy song. I think it's. I think it's a melancholy track. Um, there's there's this great book on Trot mask by Kevin Courier, who's who's a journalist and a critic, um, and he he writes in it that Old Fart had played like kind of seems like it should be the um final track on the album like it 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 ends it's not like a soothing track but but it ends in in it's performed by him at least in this um more straightforward way and the lyrics are about like like getting older and having fun and and like it's pretty straightforward lyrics all things considered and it's almost like a melancholy track and and it comes to like it it feels like him like on his porch as an old man and um and then you get like veterans day poppy at the end which feels a little bit more tacked on um, but yeah, old fart at play is is also one of the great jokes on the album. I think. Yeah, it's it, it, and it's and a also funny Like a
1: little, dis- like some of the lyrics are a little disturbing and very wordy. Like there's just all these yep. words running together. But anyways, I think for a title, old fart at play just makes me giggle. So love it. <laughs> I'm in. Ben, did, did, have you out of these twenty eight? Yeah. Can you pick a favorite title?
2: There's lots of good stuff to choose from. I think it's kind of a toss up for me between. She's too much for my mirror, which is just a oh, good one. Funny, A funny title, <laughs> or good. or neon meat dream of uh, octafish, which I'm not exactly yeah. sure what that means, but but it it sounds. <laughs> That's interesting. the best one. Uh, I really, especially in that line, the choice of ah uh, instead of an, which would be more grammatically correct. <laughs> like, I find myself wondering why. Is Anne not used
0: there? And <laughs> so that is Dada. Like that that track title and that poetry on that track is Dada. Like uh, that those words together, they do not silliness. mean anything. The word yeah. meat is misspelled. It's A yes. instead of N. Yeah. It's yeah, it's yeah. total silliness for the purpose of silliness. It's also very like like hypersexual in its lyrics. Like it's a it's a weird song. That so that weird. song is Off-putting to me. Like I, I am not going to pretend like this album is really accessible. Actually, and like I've got Mike and Ben who like feel like they just don't understand. It's actually really accessible. This this album's really (laughs) inaccessible. And there's and there's lots of tracks on here that I do not enjoy listening to. Like if you've got 28 songs, like there's going to be some songs that are going to get a skip from me for sure.
2: We found that with most of the double albums on this list so far, that, that often when you have a double album, it's at a point in an artist's career when they can do whatever they want. And I find myself wondering, yeah. like, if it was earlier in their career, maybe the producer pairs it down to 12 best songs and we get really a stellar album instead of a, a bit of a fluffy double This one, (laughs) I I don't know how you would pick from these to make a single album. (laughs) Um, But but yeah, yeah, it's because the art is there, I guess, in quantity that fills up two albums. The total running length is 78 minutes. That's definitely up there as far as one of our longest albums so far. Uh, I guess, um, what would be above it at this point, Mike? Um, Robert Johnson's... Oh
0: yeah. Everything you ever complete Robert do. Yeah.
1: yeah. And Muddy Waters that collection again was oh, well yeah. over fifty right, tracks. Right. So that, that's a that's
0: a four disc, yeah. Yeah. That's that, a big
1: collection. That would just it's just a ton it's just a ton of content, right? So
0: but, right. and those are all either collected or greatest hits. Right. And these are twenty eight original tracks that, <laughs> that were intended as a, as a, as its own album. As a whole. Yeah. I don't yeah. I mean
1: the other ones yeah. that come to mind, like Sgt. Peppers is a double. Um, and I don't
0: think it's 78 album? minutes. Yeah, Sergeant Pepper's is a single. The White Album's a double. White
2: Album
1: double. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. No, you guys are right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, the White Album is a double, and that there's no way that's 78 minutes because there's a lot of short yeah. kind of skits and things, and then um, uh, Exile on Main Street is a double. Yeah, and although it felt like it took eons to get through that one. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, i don't think it's 80 minutes it might be close i couldn't tell i was napping the whole time
0: it's actually really interesting to to think about this as a double album that comes out the year after oh gosh not even a year this comes out like um within a year of the white album so the white album comes out in november of 68 and trout mess comes out in june of 69 and the white <laughs> album is uh, you guys have already talked about it but it's it's an album that is essentially a collection of songs that are written by four individual people yes that kind of like it's like you got your john songs and your paul songs and your george songs um and it's a great album and it, it's 93 minutes long it says here but it's it is a totally different kind of a beast where it's just like here's a bunch of stuff that we did, let's put it all on an album. Um, yeah. And then Tra- Trout Mask is a double album that is almost, it's almost like a rude album. Like it's—it's it's wants you to stand up and go to your turntable and like it's daring you to put on like another album of the same music that you just heard. <laughs> like it's very intentionally, like when this comes out, there isn't a CD, there isn't MP3s. You need to buy a double wax thing where you... <laughs> Put it on the record player you have to stand up and flip it and then you have to stand up again and put on another <laughs> record of the same music um and it's it's like almost telling you like you like this instrumental that really is hard to listen to how about you put on another instrumental which is track one on side three of this album and let's see if you like that one um <laughs> i yeah it's so aggressive
1: i am not going to list all the tracks and one of the reasons i do that is that so when people are listening and they go, oh, I didn't realize this song was at, on this <laughs> album and this song. I mean, that's not going to happen to anyone on this album because no one's going to know any of these songs. I didn't so, realize
0: Pachuco Cadaver was on *Trot Wow Yeah. Oh, that's on that album? I didn't
1: know they did that. Uh, so um, if you're interested in this at all, you need to just go on YouTube or wherever you can to get your hands on it and read the list of tracks and listen to them because that's the best way to familiarize, not with me just reading them out. And I do not want to, uh, this is me being selfish, I do not want to try and pick a <laughs> five-second sound bite for each track and try and edit that in because that'll just be, I might That's yeah, a lot of track. I might have to quit. Um,
0: <laughs> it's going to break um, you. It's finally going to break you.
1: <laughs> Brad, how would you guide us through this next little part?
0: i love this album i think this album is i think this album opens up every single time you put it on and you listen to it and you need to give a lot of your attention to it it asks a lot of you Hmm. but every time you invest time into it you're going to find something brand new and i think that that is so hard to come by in music um and really in in any kind of art and um it, it truly is like a one of a kind sort of a thing. I yeah. also completely recognize that it's uh, in, intentionally a challenging piece of art and a, a challenging piece of music. Um, I I think it would be interesting to hear from you guys what tracks stood out as being like I can hold on to this as a stable point. Like China Pig is just like a blues song. Like it's really really straightforward. It's the blues song in the middle yeah. of the album. Um, <laughs> a- and then like what what tracks sort of jump out as you if you can't remember at all about like oh and this track really like turned me off or pushed me away like I'm, I'm interested in your experiences sort of going through this album and struggling with it
2: I, I would say when I think about where I find myself getting some traction on this album it's not necessarily a specific track but elements of the album I actually really like Captain Beefheart's vocal sound. The hiccup for me yeah, is me the too. piece that we've talked about several times that his vocals don't line up with the music. He, he reminds me an awful lot of an artist called William Elliott Whitmore, a uh, sort of Americana oh, yeah. blues yeah. folk singer who's got a really deep, gravelly voice um, mm-hmm. that works really well when you're sort of singing along <laughs> with a competent band um, <laughs> when it's spoken word over top of music that's not in the same tempo i find it really distracting so it's not so much that there are specific tracks that i really gravitate to but more elements the other the other piece, yeah. the the music sounds um at times like like really fun experimental rock that I've enjoyed at different eras of my life. And a band that comes to mind right away is of Montreal, Uh, especially their early early records. Cherry Peel, I think, is their first one. And some of their early stuff is just like, it almost sounds like 60s kind of beach rock, but it's like slightly out of tune and a little bit out there. And I think I hear that in the instrumentation on this album and i actually kind of really like it the tracks that i hear that the most on are uh ella guru and pachuco cadaver which uh, those are the ones that draw me to of montreal Um, kind of zany a little bit more upbeat not quite as as off kilter i guess i would say i don't really love the straight up blues riff that you mentioned in the middle because it just sort of sounds mm-hmm. boring compared to the rest of it. China Pig, is that it? Um, <laughs> yeah, China Pig. Uh, it's fine. It's easily accessible. I can listen to it and think this is a fine song, but um, it doesn't pull at me. Yeah. I think if the whole album sounded like that, it would be a very mediocre uh, blues
0: album. Yeah, it's. Um, you guys haven't done Helen Wolf yet, right? Because he's Helen Wolf has. Uh, oh at least an album, if not two on this RS500 list, but he's an old blues, an old bluesman who, um, whose voice sounds exactly like Captain Beefheart's where you, you will listen to Helen Wolf and say, oh, like this is exactly where Captain Beefheart got his, his vocals. Like he, you can just see that influence so strongly where he, um, loved Howlin' Wolf and hmm really loved how his voice came across and it's got the same gravelly it's it's like a melodic gravelliness um so he really adapted uh, like adopted that for himself and then um tom waits comes afterwards and tom waits clearly hugely influenced by captain beefheart and right. his his voice sounds a lot like a variation of what captain beefheart's doing so you can find this trajectory of influence that's that's so interesting but i mean he definitely has like i think one of the great voices in 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 rock music at least his his voice is is like part of part of the whole package deal when
1: i listen to these songs i hear all the elements of great music contained within these songs i hear cool drum riffs bass guitar runs and funky different styles of playing bass. I hear cool, uh, really neat guitar sounds and guitar runs and some some not simple guitar stuff. His voice, when he really sings and lets that raspy vocal go, mm-hmm. it sounds... Fa- there were times when, in reference to everything else happening on the track, it was a mess. But when I just thought about his voice in that moment, I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Like, he's got yeah. a cool voice. Like, what would happen if he
0: actually saying like a song if you if if you're really interested his like look up his later albums all of his later stuff is on spotify right and it it you will get a sense of what it sounds like when he when he essentially chooses to really be like i'm going to be a singer i'm gonna sing Um, yeah it's it's fascinating it's fascinating the
1: tone of it is yeah is really cool um and I'm not familiar with Howl and Wolves, but yes, there's two albums by him later on on this list, so we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. And then the, the last thing is the lyrics, at times, are very compelling and very, if nothing else, interesting and entertaining. <laughs> um, so all these things separately, I hear them that they're great, but they're just never assembled together in a way that I find enjoyable. And I want to reference two things that you uh, wrote about in your essay, Brad. Uh, one is this is challenging music, and what do we do with difficult art? And I think, and you asked that question a few times throughout your essay. And I was thinking of that as I ingested this. Like, how how do we process difficult art? And I'm not going to provide an answer. And I don't think you necessarily provide a straight up answer. I think it's a question that you need to keep asking and figuring out what that means
0: for you. I think what's important is to ask. <laughs> yes. Like the, yeah. the, process of, the process of investigating that yes. is what you do with difficult art. And yeah. you, and it, it's yes. not it's not an answer. Like the answer itself is a question. It is almost a plea. Like, please ask the question. Otherwise you're just ingesting art that you've been told to ingest, that you've been told is great and you're not challenging anything about it. And I think that is, it's upsetting I think in in a certain way because you're not really taking the time to be challenged. Now, you might come up against that challenge and then say, okay, it's not for me and I hated this and (laughs) I I don't like it. But the the act of investigating that is, is what is important. That raises a question for me then about this list. There's lots of music that is
2: challenging and forces its listener to evaluate it and then i guess i'm left with like well, well what about that is great if i find something annoying or jarring yeah. or, or unsettling does that automatically make it great like and maybe this is the same uh, debate that avant-garde in general
0: uh has caused society right like <laughs> it's it's the idea that something something is great if it's asking you to to ask questions that you have never considered because what it's doing is it's completely shaking your worldview and or maybe not completely but in some aspect of it's shaking what you have decided is your preconceived ideas of the world and and if you don't have things that push you to do that then culturally there is no advancement it's the avant-garde that creates advancement so Mm -hmm. through throughout history and especially the 20th century is the, the biggest example of this you have avant-garde art being introduced and then you have it being adopted into the culture and so that it's cool and then you have the avant-garde saying okay now here's something brand new. And then the culture yeah. is saying, okay, let's adopt this into the culture. Um, you see that a lot in advertising where something that is really strange and unusual suddenly gets like cap- capitalisticized where it be- it's turned into a commercial or an advertisement. Um, and that that's sort of like how the process goes, but you have no advancement of anything if you don't have some version at least of the avant-garde pushing boundaries and saying, try this on for size, Um, it it might be uncomfortable.
1: Uh, If you're listening right now, and if you haven't, please go to the RS500 and read Brad's essay, because he's got some great things to say. And I don't want to steal all your thunder, but the conclusion of that essay really is, um, we do with difficult art what we do with everything else. We either give it our time or we don't. With our media today, sometimes grappling with these seems just seems not worth the time. But I'd like to think that on our better days, we we decide to prefer that we like to work through it, and that exactly what you said. And that's what pushes culture. So, with that in mind, there's one other th- thing you said at the beginning of the essay was that this album uh, tricks you into thinking it's something you'll like. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, well, uh, there's different moments, and that's that is what I think of when I said I hear pieces that sound really great but they're never in cons they're never consistent with other things that i like all happening at once uh one of the songs that i feel like i'm starting to get in into is hobo chang ba which yeah. is probably uh quite racially insensitive but um yeah that's okay uh, because it's, <laughs> well it's the problematic track on the album <laughs> mask, but i feel like i'm yeah. starting like so many other songs i'm starting to bounce around in my chair for like 20 seconds and then he changes everything again it's like just <laughs> just do one song yeah, one song right. that just goes through i love that china pig is about a piggy bank uh that's great yeah <laughs> the other very challenging song lyrically is dachau blues which da is about uh concentration camp and i can't decide if the lyrics are genius or or ignorantly insensitive yeah I, I i waffle back and forth it's expressing the sadness and what's horrifying about you know the holocaust And also looking forward, saying, we don't want this to happen again. Uh, Why are we talking about it? Well, we're talking about it because you need to change the future. Uh, So part of me is like, holy smokes, like that's we could we could really use to hear that. And the other part, the way he says it at times, I go, oh, is this a little on the nose? Uh, was, Was he not thinking at
0: all in doing it? Or was he just again? Was it just, well, this is my art? I mean it's also it's also 20 25 years after the Holocaust which would be like making a song like that now about like AIDS crisis or yeah, or like right. not even but 911 making something like that. that is yeah. or something like that like something yeah. that really wasn't that long ago and I I yes. don't think he's making a joke out of it in Dachau Blues but I do no. think he's stumbling into something that he finds interesting but isn't totally like knowledgeable about or like have like he's not jewish like he doesn't have the experience that would really allow him to share the story of that and then what they do is they pair it at the end of the track with a guy who who literally just walked into their house off the street probably on drugs just going on like a rant about like like a dream he had or something he saw of um rats just like pouring into the street and people like killing them um one by one it's this like strange kind of grotesque story that that they place immediately after this song about the holocaust and um again i i think it's to create a con like a uh not a contrast but like a compliment i don't think it's to make a joke like it doesn't come across as like a joke but it 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 is like off tonally. Yeah, like it's weird. <laughs>
1: I think you hit the nail on the head that he's interested in it and he's concerned about it, but he's not really close enough to. And, yeah, and and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah. most of the survivors of of that would still be alive yep. um, at that time, whereas now you know most people are, are not alive from that conflict. Um, so yeah, that that's a that's a challenging one, but again, it's one of those things where it shows a glimmer of hey, he can kind of write some very compelling stuff here. And then the last thing is um, listening to to Moonlight on Vermont, which I know you said Brad is one of your favorite tracks, and it is one of the ones that's easier to ingest. And yeah. then hearing that refrain of "Give me that old time religion" on the yeah, vocals, sure. and then also paired on the on the guitar, you hear that playing. It was. Like the only thing on the album that I felt was familiar to me outside yeah. of the album, I was trying to find things that I could grab because I felt so out of my element listening to this album. Like I've got yeah. nothing. It's like when Ben listens to jazz. <laughs> was so, it? I mean, little uh, cheap dig there. <laughs> still bitter
0: about the jazz, um. Um,
1: but it's like it's like I was. I just felt so out of my element in this whole. 28 tracks that anytime i was like oh i know that line yes this i yep hey guys Mm -hmm. i know this you know it's like i'm wanting to say to to captain beefheart like yeah i could i could relate to some of that because so much of all my music i can relate to portions of it this i couldn't relate to any of it hardly so it was kind of like a little refreshing like as you said with the spoken word is almost grounding because it's only him talking and yeah. in that moment, that's the only thing that makes sense. It's just somebody talking. Because everything else you've just been bombarded with is like, oh my gosh. Like, I can't yeah. deal with this anymore. Someone talks. And even though he's making absolutely no sense, you're like, finally, something that's normal. You know, like...
0: <laughs> um, Moonlight on Vermont? That song rocks, man. Oh yeah, that song the guitar so good. in there? The, gu- the sound of the guitar on that song is insane. It It's so sharp. It's like... It's it just has like a needle sharpness to it um, that's so strange. It's, it sounds a lot like uh, like Lou Reed's playing on White Light White Heat, um, which if you haven't gotten to, you will. But yes. it's it's got that same like very high like high tuned like um, it's very high up on the high end of it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the dr- the drums the drums are hilarious on this whole album because they were essentially too loud for the neighbors, so they had to put cardboard on all on all the drums and they recorded it in the half And so the drums sound like garbage on this album because like he's a terrific drummer, especially for how young he is. And the drumming is like so complex, but you can hardly even hear it because (laughs) he's got cardboard on all his drums. Um, And they were just like, I guess this is what it sounds like, yeah.
2: It sounds like uh, a garage band. It sounds like the the cheapest kit that your buddy had i don't know there's something kind of heartwarming about the drum sound on this album it it sounds very familiar to me not i wouldn't have described it as as terrible i would actually describe it as like homey or something like that like <laughs>
0: this takes yeah me back it sounds like like a homemade yeah like a homemade drum kit
1: yep yeah uh now i don't know what to do for uh the spotify playlist because it's not on spotify but brad if you could pick two songs that you would put on spotify if you could for people to hear
0: what two would you pick so moonlight on vermont yeah is i think it's my favorite song on the album i think it's the most accessible track on the album while still maintaining what the album is doing um I think the most accessible track is probably China Pig. It's the first one I heard because the White Stripes actually do a cover of China Pig. Um, So I I had heard the White Stripes version of it and it sounds like the White Stripes doing China Pig. Uh, You know, there's so many songs that I think are stabilizing like um, Sweet Sweet Bulbs and Veteran's Day Poppy. Those are both songs that that have like a traditional sound to them, but I would probably put Frownland because it is the most aggressive version of I think what, what Beefheart is doing on the South it opens the album it's jarring it's like a 90 like a 90 second track it's so jarring it makes you want to stop the album immediately so I would do that I would implore everybody to go onto YouTube and find those songs you can find the whole
2: album on there too so there's a live version of Moonlight on Vermont on Spotify and there's some kind of oh, like it's
0: terrible the live version is so bad
2: there's some b-side of franland should i put those on the list for now as placeholders until spotify listens to us
0: okay i was doing my i was doing a little bit of research uh there is a track on Grofins, which is on spotify i would put Guru or sweet sweet bolts there it's it's different versions of the songs they might even be kind of instrumental but um, okay but they're still like it's the same basic tracks this kevin Currier book i was talking to, to you about he, in it he uh, um i'm sort of doing like a summary of it but essentially he says that where most albums quench a thirst like it's in a it's in a it has a sound that you want and it fills up that thirst um this creates a hunger and and trout Masque replica <laughs> exists exists for you to listen to it and it makes you hungry in a way that's like you don't really you don't you don't really enjoy being hungry necessarily. Like it, it makes you want right. to find a way yeah. to yes. to fill it up. To this album, it. right? This album doesn't really have a peer. It was there's no album that comes out around the same time period that sounds like it. It influenced so much other uh, music in the future. There are so many albums of Montreal hugely influenced by by Captain Beefheart and by this album for sure. Anything that I think has come out after this and pushed you to hear music in a different kind of way had its starting point in Trap Mask Replica. Even when it came out, it was very critically well received and critically well um, uh, respected. So it wasn't like out of obscurity it was pulled, like it was always kind of seen as oh my god this album exists, have you heard it? Um, Rolling Stone came out with a list in 1987 (laughs) that was like, these are the greatest albums ever made, and this was only 18 years after Trout Mask came out, and it was really, really high on that list in 1987. Hmm. Even at the time, people saw it as an important, like, creative formative album. You guys always talk about at the end, was this sound logic, right? Yes. And I've been thinking a lot about that. I'm fascinated that this album is even on this list of the (laughs) RS500. And It really warms my heart. I find this album to be like an underdog in a a lot of ways because it's so strange (laughs) and yet so important. Um, But I I love that it's on this list in the first place. The fact that it's in the top 100 is I think huge and I think it speaks volumes to how many people feel close to this album and and influenced by it. I went ahead and made a list of what I think are, are the most interesting albums on this list. Albums that challenge you and are doing new weird things and are changing genres and introducing new genres. And there's only 14 albums that I pulled out out of the 500 that I think are, like, these are interesting albums that are, like, getting close to the avant-garde or being strange and pushing boundaries. I think Trout Mask is, like, is number one with the bullet on that list. I think it's the most interesting album on this whole RS 500. Um, Wow. And, you know, I just as a personal top 10 pulled from, from only this RS 500 list of albums, it's in my top 10 favorite albums on this list Um, of all time. I don't think it's one of my top 10 favorite albums, but given like all these 500, I think it's, it gets in there in my top 10 saying something. That's something.
2: (laughs) (laughs) album is an interesting one. When we talk about its relevancy, um, I almost wonder if it's kind of like uh, the kind of thing I I really am glad I have in my back pocket now. Like if if someone's ever like, you know, Brad, you mentioned that Mike and I struggled a little bit with the the album by Love Forever Changes. I think I'll be enjoying the fact that if someone ever says to me, like, have you ever heard, you know, fill in the blank with an ever album? That was really a tough listen. I'll be able to sort of lay this card on the table and be like. well have you ever heard Trump mask <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in, in that regard <laughs> I, I like having that uh, you know in my experiential database I don't think it's terribly mm-hmm. relevant beyond that little nugget um, I understand that it's got incredible influence and that it's changed uh, many different styles of music but as far as it being relevant today I don't I don't think that that's quite the case. How about how about for you, Mike? Ninety-nine
1: point nine percent of people will never give this any time, even if you forced them to listen to it or said check it out. They wouldn't want to invest the time in it, and they wouldn't want to do the work to try and appreciate it or even ingest it. Uh, So then, the question I ask is, how can it be relevant if no one's going to listen to it? (laughs) Um, So (laughs) that's, I guess, how I feel about it. However. I don't think that means that it's not important even if people today wouldn't listen to it a lot of the music that they're listening to is only there because this fueled into the artists that led to that so i think that's important and i also agree brad with what you said about um avant-garde music always being relevant because it sits almost outside of time avant-garde pushes the next step of culture you know and There might be a hundred things that never go anywhere, but then there's that one thing that then becomes the next thing that we do or the next thing that becomes popular that shapes what our culture or even our society is. So in that sense, the idea of avant-garde, not necessarily that one album or that one thing, it could just absolutely flop and go nowhere, but the idea of it is relevant. Um, So that's also something to think about as well that the music itself might not be, but the, the idea of that someone would go way outside of the box is still important. Like you, Brad, I'm I'm amazed that this is on no. this list. I don't think I
2: feel quite the same about how appreciative I am that it's on this list. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know quite what to do with it as far as whether or not this position was sound logic. I'm not even sure that I would say at least one higher. I, I think... Uh, Highway 61 is definitely more accessible than than this thing. (laughs) Um, Oh no, it it finally (laughs) happened. (laughs) In some ways, I think it's similar to my struggles with the jazz albums that are on this list. Like, It just doesn't feel like it belongs. Hmm. It needs a category of its own, in my mind at least. I, I can see, I guess, how its influence maybe gives it enough credibility to land on a list like this and i sure am happy that we got a chance to listen to it uh if it wasn't on this list we wouldn't have ever had it had that um but right yeah i i don't think that i will walk away from this project thinking boy that trout mask replica sure was one of the greatest albums of all time
1: i'm struggling with the ranking myself and and i i hate to say it brad that that i i don't know that i would put it here at 60 I I see the importance I see the influence I'm I'm even learning to appreciate and dare I say enjoy some of it. That being said, greatest album there's so many other great albums coming up that so many people uh, can easily access so it that is a real struggle for me. I think I'm comfortable with this album being and again, I hate to use the word, buried somewhere in the 200s or 300s and being represented here, uh, I do struggle with being quite so high uh, when there's so many other successful, influential albums coming up. So like you, I'm glad that it's here. I'm glad we listened to it. I'm glad that we're able to have you with us, someone who this was so important to you at a young age and even now. And if nothing else then maybe that's why this is up here, because that for the people it's impacted, it is impacted uh, greatly. Absolutely.
2: Well, what about um, other albums from this artist, Mike? Do we got anything in the top 500?
1: Oh, yeah, this, uh, this is going to be, yeah, all his albums are on the top 500. And we're <laughs> going to talk about them soon uh no that's a joke um this is the only one
2: <laughs> i i do want to go back based on what you've said tonight here brad and and take a look at the rest of the catalog given that it, it does change so differently over time Um uh i know we won't have a yeah, chance to tackle anything else but but that is an interesting aspect of this album that i, I wouldn't have assumed based on <laughs> just this singular album listening through that so um, glad to get that nugget of wisdom
1: just these last couple hours have been such an eye opener for me and has helped me appreciate this art so much more and i've been so thrilled to have you here and and thank you so much for sharing this time with us because in almost anything that is created someone can can guide the way to show you how you can appreciate that creation this is one that you know, we haven't been shy about saying it's challenging. It's really, really challenging to to find what is great about this, and you have done a great job at showing us how we can appreciate it. What there is to appreciate, and also all the wonderful, uh, unique little stories and tidbits that come out of this that seem—I know we didn't even scratch the surface—that seem to be uh, never-ending of all these little uh, side tangents we can go on about the creation of this and all the tracks. So, like, this has been just such a pleasure, Brad.
0: Yeah, that's, it. that's a mission inco- accomplished from my side. <laughs> Let me introduce some some new viewpoints yeah. on this thing. Yeah, I would have loved to have been like a fly on the wall of this recording of, oh, of this album. I mean. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I would have loved it.
2: Thanks again, Brad. It, it really has been special. I'm curious. Uh, you, you've you talked a couple of times about uh, this passion project that you had in reference that you've got other things in the works. Is there anything you want to plug before you uh, end your time on the sound logic podcast that you want to direct people to?
0: If you'd like to enroll your children in the school where I am an administrator, <laughs> I will plug them. Um, I have, I have a new project. I've got a new project. It's writing about movies. It's personal essays um, about movies uh that i've been doing since september of this year i want to say or of 2019 um it's called wigwag you can look up um, wigwag or wigwagmag.com and we, we put out a new issue every month and it's just been a way for me to again create a community for myself around people who are into what i'm into which is pop culture and movies and music and who who want to write about it so that's kind of what i'm doing right now awesome
2: well thanks so much brad it's been an absolute pleasure
0: thank
1: you guys so much i really appreciated it and and i want to say personally thank you so much for listening to some of our episodes and and adding your your comments there too that means that means a lot to me
0: yeah of course i i applaud you guys for doing this project it's um it's longer than mine is so (laughs) (laughs) well that that that
1: means that means a lot that really that really does mean a lot and i appreciate it yeah i would
0: love to be back it was fun
2: once again we want to thank you for listening to the sound logic podcast and thank you so much brad for joining us Uh, what do we got coming up next time Mike?
0: well
1: we did it ben we finished another 10 so next time we are going to re-rank the last 10 albums number 51 to 60 we want to thank you for joining us Uh, thank you brad once again and until next time please be well take care of yourselves and we'll see you again on the sound logic podcast thanks everyone